It's good to see everybody. Thank you for coming. We are in week three of a four-week series on Jonah. This morning we look at the preaching prophet from Jonah chapter three. You can go ahead and try to find it while I'm uh, making some introductory comments. If you're using our pew Bible, it's on page 657. And often the focus is on the fish from chapter two, right? One time there was a little girl and she was in a class and her teacher was talking about fish and whales and she said, it's impossible for whales to swallow a human. The little girl piped up and said, well, Jonah was swallowed by a whale most likely and the teacher was sort of annoyed and just repeated herself. Uh, like I said, it's impossible for a whale to swallow a human. Their throats are simply too small. And the little girl, good Baptist little girl said, well, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to ask Jonah, I'm going to get there all about it. And the teacher said, well, what makes you think Jonah is going to be in heaven? And she thought a minute and said, well, if not, you can ask him. <laughs> Definitely learned in Baptist Sunday school. So what have we seen? Jonah chapter 1, the Lord calls him, Jonah flees, and the Lord is after him. He uses the wind as his lasso, he, he, he makes the lot fall on Jonah, finally he gets this friendly fish to swallow him and turns this fish belly into a submarine of grace, and Jonah finally prays and seems like he's on the rack track, and then he's spewed out as fish vomit, and that brings us to where we're at here. But if you haven't been here, I want us to look at the end of the book to get the key here because we get the reason for his rebellion in chapter 4. So before we jump into our passage this morning, let's remind ourselves of chapter 4, verse 1. After Nineveh repents, as we'll see today, to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So astonishingly, we learn that this Israelite prophet who's supposed to represent the Lord bells from the Lord because of the Lord's character. That's why he leaves. And so let's pick it up now in chapter 3. Let's read the whole chapter together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened 
I want us to see this morning from chapter 3, Jonah's second chance, Jonah's obedience, Nineveh's repentance, and the grace of God. So first, Jonah's second chance. Look there again at the first two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This is amazing. The word comes again. A second time. This is grace. This is mercy. Again, if I were God, and probably if you were God, this story would have ended back in chapter 1, verse 3, right? You tell your prophet to go do something, and he bells the other direction. Well, we just, we zap him, don't we? We wouldn't pursue him. I've got lots of prophets I could call on. I'm not going to waste my time pursuing this rebellious prophet. I'm not going to send a friendly fish. I'm going to send a great white shark. (laughs) Jonah's going to be the highlight of Shark Week 2019. (laughs) But God sends his word a second time. He's the God of second chances. And man, is that good news for us. I mean, just think about some of the people in the Bible. We have Abraham. Abraham lies about his wife, and he does it again. We have David, an adulterer, a murderer. Think of Peter. We spent some time with Peter this summer. He kept his foot in his mouth. He denied his Lord three times. He tried to tell his Lord what to do, and Christ continues to pursue him, continues to grant forgiveness, gives us grace to do better the next time. I wonder how many of us are walking with the Lord because the word of the Lord came a second time. I know that's the case with me. His mercy and his grace and his compassion knows no bounds. God is a God of relentless mercy, persistent grace. Maybe you're here and you haven't been following the Lord and you think I'm too far gone. It's too late. I've done too much to turn back to the Lord. And the answer is you can turn back to the Lord. He is a God with open arms. Listen to this lyrics of an old hymn that speaks of the grace that is greater than all our sin. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Wonderful grace, all sufficient for me, for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, broader than the scope of your transgressions, greater far than all your sin and shame. Oh, magnify The precious name of Jesus. Our sin is great. His mercy is more. So you can come to him. He's the God of second chances. You can trust in Christ today. If you have questions, we would love to talk about it. There are no other questions we as leaders of this church would like to have than those types of questions. So let me just invite you. The Lord invites you to turn back just like he's doing Jonah. Gives him another try. Will Jonah get it this time? Jonah's out of money. He's been shipwrecked. He's been taught by the pagans how to pray and worship. He's been swallowed by a fish. He's been turned to fish vomit. And again, it's really important to remember that God doesn't need Jonah. He just doesn't need him. Jonah was easily dispensable and easily replaceable, but this is the God of grace pursuing him. He doesn't need him. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. Acts 17, Paul preaching to a bunch of pagans on Mars Hill puts it this way. God's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, it is his pleasure to include us. He doesn't need us. We're not filling any lack in him. He fulfills his mission through his people, so it's our privilege. It's our responsibility. He doesn't need Jonah. 
He wants Jonah. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And thankfully, this time, Jonah, following the example of the wind and the sea and the fish, he finally obeys. So let's look at Jonah's obedience there in verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah goes in a day. Here he tells us Jonah's three days. He goes in a day's journey and he preaches an eight-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's five words. It's, it's like, let me do the bare minimum. It's almost like Jonah's trying to sabotage God's plan. Let me just come in, do the bare minimum, and see how this works out. I wonder if afterwards he mumbled under his breath, There, are you satisfied, you God of all grace and compassion whose mercy never ends? Can I just get back to my happy Hebrew life? Can I get back to my kingdom of comfort where my plan is perfect, my will is sovereign? Jonah is so stubborn. First time obedience to the Lord's clear revealed will would have been so much better for him. It would be so much better for us. Avoid all the consequences of sin. Avoid the pain. Avoid the chastisement of the Lord in bringing us back. Let me just encourage us. When you know what God's word says, just do it the first time. Save yourself a lot of trouble. Jonah finally does obey, but as we're going to see next week, we kind of saw already, this is merely external obedience. His heart is not in it. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among religions. It's not merely an external religion. God wants inside-out obedience. He wants from the heart obedience, which is refreshing, but it's also frightening, isn't it? Jonah had it right externally. He was a prophet. The people that gave Jesus the most problems in the first century had it right externally. They were the group, the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, that people looked to and thought, okay, that's, that's the moral majority there. That's what we need to be like. That's the standard. And Jesus comes to them and has some indicting words. He rebukes them. Let me read a section from Matthew 23. Again, Jesus speaking to the most religious, polished people of his day. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. In other words, they go above and beyond external obedience. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You who know the Torah better than anyone in society, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is where Jonah is a really good parable of the Pharisees or religious people who can look good on the outside, but they don't have a heart for the Lord. And this is a word for us here in the South, especially in Texas, especially in Abilene, Texas. Jesus says they're whitewashed tombs. I mean, just think of that imagery. The tomb looks really good. 
It's been wiped clean. It's got the flowers. It's the best looking tomb in the whole cemetery. What's inside though? Rotting bones. Jesus would also quote Hosea and say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I don't want your half-hearted religious ritual. I want your wholehearted commitment to me and what I'm about. I'm not merely after external obedience, external behavioral compliance. I am after transformed hearts is what the Lord says. Jonah was outwardly obedient, but his heart was far from God. In fact, his heart was opposed to God. So I wonder, do you have a heart for the Lord this morning? I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. There's no other place we'd rather you be this morning. But you've got to know that coming to a church service does not mean you have a heart for God. Even doing things for the Lord externally doesn't mean he has your heart. Do you have affection for King Jesus? question I like to ask ever so often is, when is the last time you wept because of your sin and God's grace? Is your heart for him? One way to say it is, do you know him? Sermon on the Mount is a very important sermon, obviously, historically, right? And the way it ends is very important. And one of the things he says there is, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, not all who say they're believers, going to be a lot of people at the end of the judgment day that say to him, Lord, Lord. He says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do this? And Jesus will say to me, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of evil. It's a scary word that everyone in here needs to ask. Do we have a heart for the Lord? Do we truly know him? Jonah didn't have his heart, but he had a lot of external things right. He was a prophet. And he comes, and his message, of course, includes this reality, includes the message of judgment. God is letting Nineveh go for now, and then there was a certain extent God decided to act. It's the same thing we see in the book of Acts. Again, Paul, uh, the same sermon to the pagans on Mars Hills, the pagan intellectuals. And here's what he says in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Same with Nineveh. There's a, a message, there's a warning of judgment, a warning we need to hear. But we also need to see this very warning is grace. This is yet more grace. God is gracious to warn us and summon us with Nineveh. If he only wanted to judge, he would have just done it. But he sends a messenger and he pursues a messenger to send them there. He could have just destroyed and it would have been totally just for him to do just that. He didn't have to chase down the prophet to make sure they got the message. Again, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, he's gracious. He is gracious to have you here to hear the warning. That judgment is coming. And we all deserve judgment because of our sin. But the good news of Christianity is that Jesus Christ took the judgment in our place. You can receive him by faith even today, right where you are. And that's what Nineveh does. They turn to the Lord. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. 
A fast was proclaimed, and all them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Remember, Nineveh was wicked. If you weren't here in the first, the first week, we talked about they had learned the art of victory through intimidation. They would just do terrible, terrible things to those that they would conquer, including skin them, skin them alive, and decorate walls with their skin, behead them, pile up their heads all over the city gate so that people would come in and realize who they're messing with. They were wicked, and they turned from their wicked action. Paul, Jonah comes in here, and he doesn't come in with a posse to this wicked, intimidating place. He comes in as fish puke. And he preaches this little measly sermon, and they repent. They turn from their evil ways and turn to the Lord, and their belief turns into action. They call out to the Lord, and then they have action, and true saving faith always leads to action. James will say that faith without works is dead. James will say that even the demons believe. But here they have action. They hit the dirt. They cover themselves in sackcloth, which was the common way in that day of showing humility and and sorrow and grief, which is the true hallmark of repentance. Nineveh repents. Look there again at verse 8. They're in the second half. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Nineveh's not overturned, but they experience a turnaround. They repent. Well, what is repentance? I love this definition by James Boyce, founder of the seminary I went to, Southern Seminary. He says this, Repentance is sorrow for sin accompanied by a determination with the help of God to sin no more. Sorrow for sin accompanied by a determination with the help of God to sin no more. It is a noticeable change in lifestyle and an inner turning from evil to God. It's to turn from evil to God. A change of heart that leads to a change of action, a change of direction in our lives. It's total surrender to a sovereign God. And here they call out in faith and they repent. And again, those two always go together. The call of the gospel is to repent and believe. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance. Without repentance, there is no genuine faith. Again, something that the Bible Belt needs to hear. Not all who call on me and say, Lord, Lord, will enter the heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father. True faith is accompanied by repentance. And again, this should be sobering. Something we all as believers ought to examine ourselves and ask ourselves. And it's frustrating to me because there are so many people not interested in the Christian faith because they know somebody who claims to be a Christian who has no life transformation whatsoever. And it gives Christ ultimately a bad name because the call to Christ is not only believe but to turn from sin. When we do that, always imperfectly, always a process, we will have changed lives, lives that will be compelling to those who don't know the Lord. Too many Christians, so-called Christians, Christians in name only, know nothing about the repentance of sin. And sadly, you won't hear this message of repentance in many pulpits today 
But this is all over the Bible. This was the first message of John the Baptist. He comes on the scene and he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here's what he says to the crowds. He says, he comes, his first sermon, you brood of vipers. Not very seeker sensitive, is it? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's the first message of the first prophet of the new covenant. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't think you're okay because you might have some type of religious legacy, religious heritage. You must repent. Turn from sin. Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1. What is his first words? His first message. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so I just want to ask, have you repented? Initially, if you're a believer, the question is, are you repenting? Because repentance is the whole Christian life. It's not a momentary action. It's an ongoing process. Christians are not those who no longer sin. We will continue to sin and fight sin for the rest of our lives. Christians are not those who no longer sin, but Christians are those who are no longer okay with their sin. It's okay to be okay. It is not okay with being okay about it. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. This formerly wicked Ninevite king leads the way in repentance. God sovereignly saves the king, which leads to city revival. Remember how we've seen God's sovereignty so much in here. Proverbs says that even the lot, it's like throwing dice, even the lot that is cast, its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16. Verse 33, and then we see the king. The king comes to faith. And a few chapters later in Proverbs chapter 1, it says this about the king. The, the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. Proverbs chapter 21. So the Lord turns this Ninevite king to himself. And through the king, he leads the whole city to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their idols. And remember we saw in chapter 2, part of that prayer, those who cling to idols forsake their chance of God's love. Idols are so much more than the little wooden things, right? Jonah knew that. Idols are more subtle. They're anything that we cling to, anything we worship and seek to find refuge in other than the Lord. Here's how Martin Luther defines it. He says, to whatever we look for any good thing, and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God, lowercase g. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. And an idol can be anything. And again, for this room, it's probably good things that we're tempted to make ultimate things and displace Christ. It's anything besides Jesus that you can't imagine living life without. That thing you worry about losing, that thing or person or place besides Jesus you go to for refuge or for comfort or fulfillment. And again, we can make anything an idol. We can make fame and money an idol. It's interesting. We'll make fun of like primitive cultures that would do child sacrifice. And yet every week families are sacrificed on the altar of, of success and money and promotion and reputation. And it doesn't last. That's what's so surprising to me is we see how many celebrities that get what so many people are after end up ending their own lives. So many people are living, if I could only have this much more money or these more things are known by these many people or this many Instagram followers or this next, you can boil it down to money or fame. 
So many people are driven by these things. If only, yet we see again and again all these people that get at the top of their game and have everything that so many people want, and they get there and realize that's not it. I mean, just think. Marilyn Monroe, Ernest Hemingway, Junior Seau in football, Amy Winehouse in music, Robin Williams in comedy and acting, Mindy McCready in music, Kurt Cobain, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, people at the top of their game, they get there, and something is missing, and so they just end it all. Because Augustine, as he said all those years ago, is right. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So the word comes and these pagans, they turn from their idols, they turn from their wickedness, and they turn to the Lord. Turn from their idols to the living God, just like the sailors did in chapter 1. God runs to his enemies while Jonah runs away from his enemies. And again, these are bad people. These are really, really bad people. I mentioned in chapter 1, it would be like us being called to go preach to ISIS or Al-Qaeda. So here we learn the heart of God is not just for the polished and pretty. It's not just for the religious. It's not just for those who have it all together. God loves to save sinners. This is why Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders. His whole life he was in trouble. He went with the marginalized. He went with the bad people. He went to the rough parts of town. He went to the other side of the tracks. He hung around with the worst of the worst in that culture the prostitutes and the tax collectors and he went to their parties and he was there so much that he was accused of being a glutton he was accused of being a drunkard he said healthy people don't need a doctor sick people do he came not for the righteous but for sinners and this is what we see in Jonah and Jonah wants nothing to do with it look at verse 10 the grace of God when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah was right. He was right about God. God shows grace and compassion. How dare him? Of course, if Jonah knew his Bible, he would have read the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 6. It says, an invitation, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. They repent and God relents. One Old Testament scholar says this way, under the sovereign control of God, the choices people make determine the direction history will take again we see that tension i mentioned a couple chapters ago in chapter two when jonah says cast me into the sea and he does he's cast into the sea and then he says the lord threw me there and he says those are your waves and so we see that jonah it was his idea and the sailors they threw him into the sea and jonah says actually that was the lord that did it i'm introduced to you this term called compatibilism the fact that god is totally sovereign and we as people are totally responsible. It's not contradictory. It's compatible. And we see that right here. God warns. Nineveh repents. God relents. God responds to their repentance. If Nineveh had not repented, God would not have relented. What we do matters. Your actions matter. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Your prayers are heard. God works his sovereign plan through means, and the means through which he works are often his people. Again, it's our privilege. It's our responsibility. 
God accomplishes his plan through us. Again, if you can't sort all this out in your head, don't try to master the tension. Just embrace it and do your part well. What a God of grace. Their evil was what first got God's attention, remember? In chapter 1. And he spares them. Again, God saves sinners. He doesn't save righteous people. He justifies the ungodly, not the godly. We're all ungodly. We're all sinners. It's just a matter of those who know us to be so. When he says he, he didn't come for the righteous but for sinners, it's those who know themselves to be sinners because that's what we all are. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son while we were his enemies, not his friends. What grace. And here we have history's probably greatest revival. And the instrument, get this, the instrument God uses is extremely faulty, isn't it? This disobedient prophet is the means God uses to save a whole city. We need to hear this. It is not the quality of the messenger that matters. It's the power of the message. This should encourage us in ministry, shouldn't it? The gospel, the message is the power of God unto salvation. God uses his gospel to save. And so if you have wobbly knees in here when it comes to telling people about Jesus, you need to know God can use you. The results don't rest on your shoulders, they rest on his. As he prayed in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. Be encouraged to be a witness. God is the one who saves. He just uses us. Even though we're far from perfect entrance, maybe you say, you know what? I can't tell people about the Lord. I don't have it all together. Welcome to fallen humanity. Neither did Jonah. <laughs> Praise God. He can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He once spoke through a donkey to accomplish his purposes. He can speak through us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is <clears throat> one of my favorite verses. It says this. It says, we have this treasure, and he's speaking of the message of the gospel. We, the church, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In jars of clay, we hear that and think, okay, but in that day, it was the most common way to carry anything. It was very cheap, usually didn't last long. It's, it's like our plastic grocery sacks, basically. We have this treasure in plastic, congratulations, you are a plastic grocery sack. But you have the treasure of the gospel that we have the privilege to carry. And he says it in this verse, so that the all-surpassing power will be shown to be from God and not from us. It's why he has designed it this way. Weak, finite, sinful, inarticulate people that God delights to use and save people because the power belongs to him, not to us. I hope that's encouraging. From Jonah we learn... God cares about the outsiders, and we had better as well. Part of being godly is having the heart and mission of God. Again, Jonah missed it. Jonah probably had all kinds of things right, but he missed the bigger picture. I've, I went here almost every week. I want to do it again. Remember, God creates the world, and his intention is that the Garden of Eden would continue to grow. Adam and Eve would multiply, and they'd have God-fearing 
offspring and they would expand the borders, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden until the whole world was filled with his glory. Didn't happen, right? There was sin. But God's not done. He's got a project, a mission, a rescue project. And so in chapter 12, he calls out this one person named Abram and says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be huge. You're going to become a nation. Your family's going to grow. And through you, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. That's the point, Abram and your family. Blessed to be a blessing. Don't miss the point. And in case you missed it, as your family does grow, the old covenant, the giving of the law in Exodus 19, they become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. When they heard that, they should have known for what a priest do. They mediate between God and people. That has always been the point of the people of God, to have an outward focus, to be a priesthood. Jonah missed it. He totally missed the purpose of the people of God, and he doesn't want the outsider to be blessed. Church, let's be on guard not to become ingrown. Do you care about the gospel going forward locally and globally? Or do you just care about your own tribe, like Jonah, your own comfort? Sadly, the Great Commission is all too often the great omission. But God gives grace to people who need grace so that we might be agents of grace to others who need grace. Grace comes to you because it's on its way to some other needy sinner. That's his plan. And that's our primary purpose. So let's not become ingrown. Let me give you five challenges to move towards being outward focused. Just five easy easy challenges. Number one, learn the names of your neighbors. And maybe just start with the immediate vicinity, like put it on a map, draw your house, and what are the houses that touch the borders of yours? And begin to fill in the names if you don't know them. Just learn their names. That's a huge first step, I think, to building a relationship and sharing the gospel. Secondly, begin to pray weekly for someone you know that doesn't know the Lord. Add them to your prayer list and weekly pray that God would save them. Challenging question also I like to remind us is if, if God answered every one of your prayers from the last month, who would be saved? Third thing, pray for Sunday mornings. I need your prayer. We need your prayer. God works through his word as we've seen in Jonah. And so pray that on Sunday mornings, God would work through his word in power. Fourth, as Cody mentioned, invite someone to our fall series. It's one of those series, kind of a unique series, that's easy to invite because of the nature of the questions we're going to tackle. It starts in two weeks. It takes us through the whole fall. And so you've got those invite cards. They're at, the, they're at the doorways. Grab an invite card and maybe invite one person to the fall series. And then fifth, view Sundays as a mission field. The Lord is bringing a lot of new faces and visitors to Southside, and we can praise God for that. And if you're here, I know it's easy to talk to someone. Let me encourage you, as you come 15 minutes early and as you stay 15 minutes late, redeem that time and meet someone new. You never know where people are spiritually. There may be someone that's maybe been in church for 20 years and mature, and they just moved to town. It may be someone that it took everything for them to walk through those doors. And so view Sundays as a mission field. Make it a point to meet someone you don't know. The Lord is giving us an opportunity right before us. Let's take advantage of it. Those are five ways we can learn to be outwardly. And then finally, another scary lesson that we learn from Jonah is that there really are two ways to run from God. 
There's the pagan way and the religious way. We get the pagan way, right? That was the sailors. That was Nineveh before they repented. They didn't want anything to do with the Lord. They don't want to submit to his authority. They're going to do their own thing. They're running from the Lord in that way. But there's a religious way we learn to run from the Lord, right? Jonah is the prime example. He's a religious leader. He's running from the Lord. Again, the Pharisees. The teachers of the law, they were religious leaders. They did religious stuff. They had a bunch of religious knowledge, but they missed the heart and the mission of God. So they were running from the Lord while being conformed to some of the external rules. This is really what the prodigal son is all about. We hear the prodigal son and we think about the prodigal son. And it is in large part about the prodigal son, but really the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, is actually more about the older brother than the younger prodigal. And we know that because at the beginning of chapter 15, there are these religious leaders that are grumbling because Jesus accepts and eats with sinners. How dare him? And so as he's addressing the audience, there are grumbling religious people who don't like the fact that Jesus hangs out with the outsiders. Then he tells the stories, right? In Luke 15, you have the prodigal son who goes, he's the sinner. And he comes back and rather than celebrating, what does the older brother do? Yes. He doesn't know the heart of God. He kept the rules, but he doesn't know his father's hearts. He's running from the father, even while being within the home and keeping his rules. Sounds like Jonah. Jonah is the older brother. Avoiding God while conforming externally to some of his commands. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be about what God is about. Let's not have some religious garb while missing his heart and his mission. As we close here, I want us to to bow our heads and close our eyes. I want us to remove ourselves from distraction and just focus this morning on how might we respond to the Lord. What is your response this morning to God's word? Maybe you just want to thank him and praise him because he is the God of second chances. And you wouldn't be here if the word of the Lord hadn't come a second time or a third time or a fourth time. And so you want to respond just by thanking him. You want to respond by praising him for his gracious nature, for his relentless pursuit. Maybe the Lord's already given you a name. You've already got a name of an unchurched person. The Lord already put them on your heart. And so it's time to begin to pray for them. Maybe you already have been praying and now it's time to talk. Pray that God would give you the boldness to do just that. Maybe the call for you is repentance, to turn from sin, to turn to Christ. Maybe you're a believer and you already know there is some area in your life that is contrary to the revealed will of God. God is calling you this morning to turn to him. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Today is the day to commit your life to him. And if you do that, you can do that right where you are. Just call out to him. If you do that, tell somebody. I want all of us just to take a moment. We're going to take a moment to pray, confess, meditate. And then here in a moment, we're going to respond to God's word through singing.